This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. A girl child is very important in the world, in the family, everything. They see saying that when there's life, there is hope. So I feel that there is hope for me. That's Nigerian teenager Jennifer John, who dropped out of secondary school due to lack of funds. Details coming up. Also, Tigray forces say Eritrea has extended its offensive into their region. Chad's prime minister has, has resigned to help a new government prepare for elections. And we will look into the growing frequency of coup d'etats in Africa. These stories and more on African News Tonight. First, our top story. A coup d'etat in Burkina Faso in January placed Lieutenant Colonel Paul Andri Sandoga Damiba at the head of a military government. Eight months later, Damiba was replaced by Captain Ibrahim Traore as the country's interim leader in a second coup. As the African Union continues to celebrate its 20-year anniversary, the resurgence of coup d'etats in the Sahel has called into question its seriousness in combating unconstitutional changes of government. Paul Milley is consulting fellow Africa program at Chatham House with a focus mainly in politics and stability in Francophone Africa and grassroots development in the Sahel with military interventions on the rise, and particularly the boldness of the military in the case of Burkina Faso to conduct a second coup, I first asked Paul if this shows how little the military fears the African Union, or for that matter of fact, ECOWAS. I don't think so, actually. I think particularly this Burkina coup should be seen as essentially an internal change, just within the military who had taken power in January because there was some sign of resentment, if you like, among some of the military over the behavior of uh, Damiba, the military leader who took power in January. I don't think the, the soldiers were even thinking about the African Union particularly. I think the most influential bloc in West Africa is ECOWAS, and uh, they very quickly agreed to stay in the framework that had already been agreed with ECOWAS. Now, the test will remain, will they stick with that? We don't know. But if they live up to it, then I think we would see this really as an internal shuffle, an internal change within the military. Has the declining fearsomeness of Nigeria within the ECOWAS system limited its deterrence capability in West Africa? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think the culture of ECOWAS has always been one of collective action. Uh, Nigeria does not dominate ECOWAS. Although it's much the largest economy and accounts for a very big chunk of the population of West Africa, with after well over 200 million people, it actually operates and shows respect for the collective decision-making systems of ECOWAS. And that sense of West Africa as a coherent collective region that has a strong sense of West African identity in which Nigeria may be a very large country but just cooperates with its neighbors, that remains the case and it's 
it has been the case for decades. As usual, the international community, including the United Nations, the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, and the African Union, AU, uh, condemn the military takeovers. But is that enough? Don't you think the region will experience more military coups if the AU and international community are not more rigid in their opposition to the unlawful use of instruments of coercion by the military? No, I think their stance is clear, but I don't think that threatening extra sanctions or a more rigorous condemnation, the condemnation was very clear, but we need to remember that Burkina Faso is one of the poorest countries in the world. If you impose very heavy economic trade sanctions, the people who will suffer wouldn't be the soldiers who staged a coup, but just ordinary Burkina people who would then not be able to get basic goods and who would see their jobs, their livelihoods uh, damaged. Um, If you look at the coups that we've had in the region over the last two or three years, each one has been in a country for a very specific reason. uh, And although in some cases, the fact that one coup has happened has encouraged soldiers in another to think that they could act like this, I don't think that a very heavy economic sanctions on a country are necessarily the answer. The answer is in much more in trying to strengthen political culture and strengthen the core democratic institutions. And Burkina is a bit different from uh, the situation in uh, Guinea, for example. In Guinea, the coup was provoked by the fact that the president who was elected then changed the constitution so he could seek another term. He had thrown political critics into prison. The security forces were committing human rights abuses. And so that created a situation where there was popular support where the army intervened. In Burkina, it's quite different. No one was questioning the democratic president's uh, legitimacy or, in fact, his following of democratic rules. But his military campaign to try and contain the jihadists proved ineffective. And then in Mali, you have a different situation again. ECOWAS is right to take the slightly longer term view and try and build a culture of cooperation and negotiation to nudge countries back into constitutional democratic rule. That was Paul Milley, Consulting Fellow Africa Programme at Chatham House, speaking with me from London. Just days after peace talks to end the almost two-year-long conflict between the Ethiopian government and Tigray forces were postponed, the Tigrayan leadership says Eritrea has extended its offensive into their region. In a statement yesterday, the Tigray forces said Eritrea's military has launched an extensive offensive in the direction of Rama, Zalambasa, and Sarona towns in northeastern Tigray. They urged Tigray's population to further intensify their campaign of self-defense. Meanwhile, Ethiopian President Sahalawar Zaudeh has reiterated calls for negotiations and other peaceful methods to end the country's nearly two-year civil war. While addressing the Ethiopian parliament yesterday, she also stated that at the same time, the government of Ethiopia will not tolerate any provocation by the TPLF. Hussein Kiflu a political and social commentator tells VOA's Douglas Mpuga that Eritrea might have its own reasons to attack TPLF. For Isaiah Saforki, uh, as you know, he's waging this war uh, for two reasons. One is to avenge uh, his defeat uh, in, in, during the 1998 2000 
bad mewar. And uh, two, because uh, by uh, perennially posturing uh, in a state of war mode, that's how he thinks that uh, he can maintain uh, control over Eritreans. Uh, if there is no war situation, then uh, he cannot uh, pretend uh, with his uh, you know, endless conscription of uh, Eritrean youth. These are the main reasons that uh, Isaiah Saporki is involved in this war in Tigray. So this comes amid postponed uh, peace talks between the, uh, the Tigray uh, forces and the Ethiopian government. And yesterday, Ethiopian president called uh, for peaceful means to end the conflict, although she also cautioned the PTPLF against what she called provocation of the Ethiopian government. Do these mixed messages help resolve the situation? Uh, no, it doesn't help at all. Because these people, they know very well that uh, what they call TPLF, uh, after all, the president herself and also Abiy Ahmed and company, they were at the hirelings of TPLF. They worked under TPLF. And they know very well that TPLF enjoys a huge and tremendous support from the Tigran people. That doesn't make it, you know, the way Tigran supports uh, TPLF, it doesn't mean that they all endorse uh, TPLF's policy, uh, uh, you know, according to the letter. It's just like the Vietnamese were supporting the Vietcongs. It doesn't mean that all Vietnamese were communists, but for various reasons, because they were, uh, they were not happy with the way Americans were dealing with their, with their situation, so they, they supported, they rallied behind the Vietcongs. So now, Tigrans, even though they don't endorse all of the grants don't endorse the policy of TPLF. They support TPLF. You know, there is TPLF enjoys a huge support from the Tigrans. It is the international community that that is also buying this story, and uh, they think that by eradicating TPLF, the whole problem in that region will be solved. But that's not uh, that's not uh, uh, what's going to happen. And where does all this leave the prospect of solving this conflict peacefully through talks, briefly? You know, the way I see it, uh, there is no uh, genuine desire uh, to end this uh, war uh, peacefully. Uh, all they try uh, to do is, uh, you know, whenever they, they mention about peace talk, it's just to buy time. They are not uh, genuine about it. So I don't think so. There is any genuine desire for peace talk, especially from even from the African Union. International community is also showing double standard while they express concern for uh, Ukraine. They don't seem to care about what's going on uh, in Tigray. Given the humanitarian situation in Tigray uh, in the present uh, conflict, what chances are there to help people who are trapped in uh, the region? Currently, with the way the Eritrean regime and uh, the Ethiopian regime, uh, Isaiah Saforki and Abiy Yamad, are conducting a war of attrition, coupled with the previous problem. You know, Tigray has been blockaded for almost two years. There is little humanitarian aid uh, going into Tigray. So now, uh, with the past uh, one month with this war of attrition, it's even difficult to imagine how many civilians are dying by indiscriminate bombing. Uh, in addition to uh, famine, uh, when this conflict, when this war ends in one way or another, what the world is going to witness uh, in Tigray is really scary.
That was Hussein Kiflu, a political and social commentator. He spoke with Douglas Mpuga from Dallas, Texas. Chad's Prime Minister Albert Fami Padeki has resigned to make room for a new government that will prepare the country for elections in two years. Reuters notes that the military government named Padaki to the post last year. The head of the junta, Mohammad Idris Debi, seized power in 2021 following his father's death. Yesterday, he said a government of national union would be created within days to lead the country towards elections. The announcement follows a forum that ended Saturday which appointed him as transitional president. The meeting, termed a a national inclusive dialogue, was boycotted by two of the country's three main rebel groups and much of the political opposition. You're listening to Africa News Tonight. On the Voice of America, I'm Yehiz Wuhib in Washington. Libya's Tripoli-based government of national unity and Turkey have signed a memorandum of understanding for energy exploration in a contested maritime zone in the eastern Mediterranean. While Prime Minister Abdelhamid Dabiba defended the deal, citing global demand for gas since the Russian-Ukraine war, the government of rival Prime Minister-designate Fatih Bashega rejected it. Speaker of the Tobruk-based House of Representatives, Aguila Saleh, called the agreement illegal because it was signed by a government that has no mandate. VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi discussed the legal problems facing this deal with Wolfgang Postai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya. This signing of the Memorandum of Understanding on Cooperation in the Oil and Gas Sector has a very huge impact on the whole region. This is about exploration, drilling and production in the onshore and offshore sectors off the coast of Libya. And the work is to be carried out by Turkish-Libyan joint ventures. There is a rumor that the Dabeba clan is heavily involved on the Libyan side. The Turks are having very favorable conditions because in turn Erdogan promised to defend Libya, which means the government in Tripoli, with military means. The problem is this maritime agreement is based on the maritime agreement from 27 November 2019, which is a violation of the international law of the sea. It ignores the existence of the Greek islands like Crete and establishes a delineation of the sea borders between Egypt and Turkey, which is actually not existing. It establishes a common border just south of Crete. Turkey aims to establish Libya as an energy hub for Turkey to solve its long-standing energy problems. And by this agreement, they are not only touching the situation between Greece and Egypt and Libya, but this is also an impact on Malta, which is an island which has also, according to the Turks, now no exclusive economic zone. This has also an impact on Italy. Sicily, Sardinia has no such zone. So one must keep in mind, this is not just a bilateral problem between Libya and Greece, or maybe between Libya and Turkey, but this has a huge wider regional impact. Would that agreement with Turkey complicate the political crisis and the stalemate caused by the two governments in Libya? Yes, certainly. Because as you have explained before, the House of Representatives and Fatih Pashaga are well aware that they can use this agreement to establish an international front against the Dabeba government. I would say if Bashaga would have been in charge, he probably would have done exactly the same. But what might be different is that the conditions that Turkey got from this agreement with Dabeba are extremely favorable for Turkey. This means several people in Libya are claiming 
that the Beba has sold out oil wealth of Libya to Turkey. And this could become an increasing problem for the Beba. Analysts believe the memorandum signed by Turkey with the Beba has brought the Libyan crisis back to the fore as a source of economic rather than security or political concerns in the Mediterranean basin. Do you agree with such an analysis? Well, I would say this has certainly a huge impact, not only on the economic situation, but also on the political and on the security situation in the Mediterranean, especially in the Eastern Basin. Greece has already announced that they will defend their sovereign rights, even with military means. Egypt is probably ready to join them. So keeping in mind that next year there are crucial elections in Turkey, presidential elections, I fear that we could see some escalation in the sea to the south of Crete next year. That was Wolfgang Porstai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA's Mohamed al-Shinawi. As Nigerians celebrate the International Day of the Girl Child, it has become pertinent to address some of the challenges facing girls and how their rights can be protected. Here's, here is more from Abuja. The treatment of female children, especially in regards to education, is a matter of concern in Nigeria as the average rural parent would rather invest in the education of boys. In a bid to address the situation, the United Nations set aside October 11 as the International Day of the Girl Child to promote girls' human rights and highlight gender inequalities and all the challenges affecting them. Teenager Jennifer John from Benue State, Nigeria, who dropped out of secondary school due to lack of funds, highlights the importance of girls' education. When a girl child is well-trained, well-educated, the husband will respect her, have value on her. But when she's not educated, the husband will be treating her, be thinking that she's nothing. So I think they should not train only the boy child, but the both of them, because when you educate the girl child, you have educated the whole world. Activists say that despite accounting for almost half of Nigeria's 206 million people, girls and women are treated as second-class citizens. Girls are typically perceived to be weaker and are designated to just reproduce, cook and do all the household chores compared to her male counterparts. UNICEF says girls account for over half of the 18.5 million children who are out of school in Nigeria. The agency says only one in four girls from poor rural families complete junior secondary education. The situation has worsened in parts of the country, especially the north, where attacks by gunmen have discouraged families from sending their children to school. Jennifer Jones says conditions have been so difficult she contemplated suicide but reconsidered after intervention. She identified education as key to changing the fate and future of millions of poor girls in Nigeria. I also wish that our government and president should do something about educating a girl child because a girl child is very important in the world, in the family, everything. They say saying that when there's life, there is hope. So I feel that there is hope for me. UNICEF says with education, girls can see an increase in lifetime earnings, a decline in rates of child marriage and in child and maternal mortality. Some say the narrative that girls are inferior is changing in some parts of Nigeria. 
but many economies say it is clear that their lack of access to quality education and opportunities stunts Nigeria's development. For VOA News from Abuja, Nigeria. There are concerns that mental health does not receive enough attention among African population despite the high rate of mental illness on the continent. An organization, Africans for Mental Health, based in the United States, is working to break the stigma around mental illness in the African community. VOA health reporter Lenord Moudou spoke to two sisters, Sally Nyambita, Oport, founder and chief advocacy officer of Africans for Mental Health, and Joan Oport, the organization's chief executive. Our mission at Africans for Mental Health is to break the stigma of mental illness in the African community. And when we really looked at the mission, at the beginning we said the African diaspora, and that has since expanded to include Afro-descent, African-Americans, Africans in Africa, Latin uh, Africa, Afro, Afro-Latinas, Afro-Caribbeans, anyone who can say that they come from the continent or they came through the continent of Africa. Sally, as the chief advocacy officer and founder as well, why was it important to start such a foundation? Well, it really started because, mainly because of me. I am a mental health patient, so in order for us as patients, for our voice to be heard, we need an advocate. So for me to be an advocate, it's, it's easier for someone to say, okay, you know what, I need help. And so that's why we started this foundation. And you say you are a mental health patient. If you are okay talking about it, what area? Because mental health is vast. I have depression, I have anxiety, hmm. I have panic attacks. When we talk about mental health uh, in Africa, right, the typical image that we see, Joanne, is these people that are walking down the street. I don't know if it's like that for you in, the, in your part of the continent, but certainly in my country, in my region, when we talk about mental illness, people tend to think about the people who walk on the street. Sometimes they are naked and, you know, they're just not well. But mental illness has so many faces, so many variations. Talk to us about the importance of raising awareness about mental illness among Africans. So actually what you raise is really amazing because when it comes to the stigma or the fear around mental illness, the first instinct is to think that the person you're seeing who is in crisis in most cases, if you're seeing them walking around, um, maybe they don't have any clothes on, maybe they are in crisis, right? They are living with an undiagnosed mental illness and they're living in crisis at that, mm-hmm. at that point. But mental illness in and of itself is usually not visible unless you know some of the key symptoms of what that looks like. And all of us, uh, whether you are a mental health professional, and we are not mental health professionals at Africans Mental Health as the co-founders. We are uh, advocates and uh, mental health patients and caregivers. And so it could be depression where you see someone living in isolation who has been going through so much or is having a panic attack as Sally expressed she lives with uh, anxiety. You know, it could be someone who's living with a substance abuse, meaning they, you know, abuse alcohol because of as as part of their illness. Uh, You know, it could be opioid use. It could be, uh, you know, marijuana use. It could be someone who's living with an eating disorder, like a bulimia or anorexia, where you either you binge the food and you and you uh, puke it out or or uh, you don't eat 
right? So there are very different kinds of mental illnesses around. Um, and the last time we checked, there's 300 clients, 300 uh, according to DSMV. I could we could be we could be fine. We could be corrected on that. And so for us as individuals, we should take an, an interest in learning about the types of symptoms that could be visible in someone who's living with mental illness, mm -hmm. not because we want to diagnose the person, but because we want to offer help. That was VOA health reporter Leonard Mudu speaking with Sally Niambiti Oport, founder of African for Mental Health, and her sister Joanne Oport, the organization's CEO. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehi Wuhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Justin Twait, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.